millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I had Ollie on the other day, actually. Barton Wood. Oh, really? Yeah, I was speaking to him on Friday, Friday morning, yeah. Oh, nice. Yeah, it was it was good. Cool guy. Yeah, he is. Yeah, we've known each other a while now. You did the last single together, right? You did Hitchin together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We did. I saw. Um, we finished it together. Yeah. Have you been doing quite a lot of stuff with him lately as well? Like in terms of, because you you got the same studio, right? Uh, yeah, we sh- we built a little studio together. We did three songs together. Maybe five months ago, four months ago, in between the lockdowns, which went really well in a little studio in Eastbourne called Echo Zoo. It was good, yeah. He he's he's very good at. I sort of start songs on my own, and then they get to a place where I don't know quite what to do with them. He's very good at making me believe that they're over the finish line. Sometimes it's hard to know when something's finished. So do you just send it to, send it to him or show it to him and he kind of gives you the thumbs up or does he do you work on it a little bit together to get it over the finish line? Yeah, we we he's a very competent, good engineer. It was me, him and a guy called Mike Horner. So his surname I think it's Mike Horner, who's an amazing engineer and producer as well. So there's the three of us and Oscar who Oscar Brown who well plays bass in Mellow and is a good guy to have around because he's always got good ideas. So yeah, I'll sort of have like a rough structure of the song and it, and it doesn't change that much. Like most of the recordings I've already done, we use, we just sort of shape them into something that sounds more honed and then add the icing and the cherries and then eat, eat the cake. Was that the same for this recent one? Because it's a wee bit of an older song in terms of when the actual song was penned. Uh, yeah, I, I recorded it probably six, seven years ago, I think. Yeah, a long time ago. Was it different? How do you mean? Was it the same in terms of you kind of took it in like you were saying there and kind of just honed it and refined it a little bit? Yeah, exactly. We kind of stripped some of it back, changed the structure a bit. I got a bit upset that week. I was a bit obsessed with wobble boards for some reason. So I made a wobble board and put that on all the songs, put a lot of wobble board on it. I think we re- retracked the drums and yeah, just like little little noggins, you know. Did you say you made a wobble board? Well, I. The studio we were in had this accommodation above it, so I just went up and, don't tell them, but I pulled apart one of their <laughs> picture frames and used the backing of the picture frame as the wobble board. It worked pretty well, actually. Um, I think wobble boards kind of went out of fashion after Rolf. Yeah. But, you know, can't just attribute that instrument to him. It's a really good instrument. It's not. Too, it's not like you're using it too prominently in the mix. It's kind of. It's a little bit of decoration as well, isn't it? Yeah. Thing is, I love things like that. If you took it out, it's so noticeable. 
but when it's in you don't actually hear it do you do that a lot when you're working on stuff and like going through will you take out bits and see how it sounds when you remove something or mute it yeah that's essentially how i i, I don't mix on my own i always kind of mix with mix engineers but i always like to be there while they're doing it usually partly because i want to learn how some of them do it some of them amazing but also i think with a song the aim with it for me anyway is to get it back to just exact like the basics of what it needs i kind of just strip it back to the core of it and then bring bits back in and make the decision whether they're vital to the song or not yeah the kind of rick rubin style method of just stripping it back to only what's needed is that is that a rick i didn't know that was a rick rubin thing I think, I think that's kind of what he... I mean, it's maybe I mean, probably it not his method sense. that he's coined, but he's kind of about that, isn't he, a little bit, just stripping it back to the bare elements. Yeah, I think it's a, it's a really hard thing to do. I genuinely think that's one of the hardest things about being a... Well, not maybe not even a musician, but like an artist is... Because every time you take something out, it's like killing one of your kids, you know? It's like you have to get rid of something that you really love in place of something else you really love. You kind of got to pick which which children you love the most. When do you get to a point though, so you, you know, say you take something out of a mix, when do you get to a point where you can kind of appreciate it for being better and that pain kind of goes away? When it's not confusing, when you know what you're paying attention to, it's a hard, it's a hard thing to get a hold on. But if you take it out and it doesn't, it isn't adding like a mood or a layer that's really vital. If you don't notice it that much when it comes out, basically, you just take it out. Even if it sounds amazing on its own, when it's in the song, if it sounds wrong, then, or if it just, just doesn't add anything, then, then yeah, you've got to be brutal with it. I mean, for Hitching, did you try and take the wobble board out and then notice how important it was? <laughs> was it something that was maybe on the, the line at one point? Yeah, yeah, I took it out and it made a massive difference. So put it back in. You say, you say seven years ago it was written? Uh, yeah, yeah, six or seven years ago. I remember last time we spoke, we were speaking a lot about how you kind of use songwriting as a tool for understanding the world and kind of unpacking what the hell's going on a little bit. Yeah. But how has your kind of understanding of the world changed in those seven years since the song was written? Well, that song is about kind of letting go and sort of letting, letting hitching, you know, hitching, hitching a ride on the free ride. But I do think that's quite important to let go and let go with, the flow as it were but i think as i've got older i've realized that i also have a responsibility with certain things as easy as it is to like completely let go and just flow with it i think also i guess i've got responsibilities now and people who rely on me and i've realized i can't just prance around doing what i want so yeah, i guess i've changed in that way how does that impact your creativity when you have that sense of responsibility that maybe wasn't there when you were younger it's I think it's probably made a lot of my songs a lot more introspective and less fun (laughs) Um, I think I've in the last few years I've really my aim with music is just to try and be as open and honest with myself as I can be yeah whereas before I think it was kind of more back when I wrote Hitchin it was it was more it was a lot more fun I think I'm quite heavy with it now what are some of the more recent songs you've written then that maybe fall into that heavier category that have been released? Death Pillage Blunders, pretty heavy. Uh, my so I've, what I've tried to do is like make the music quite fun. Yeah, so I was going to say it's kind of counterbalanced. Yeah, and then because like my aim with Mellow really is to has always been to like get in get into people get in on the radio like get into people's homes, but kind of through the back door, you know, under the disguise of pop. Or like catchy rhythms and then talk about something yeah because pop doesn't really talks about anything mostly pretty vapid i mean i guess hip-hop's pretty popular at the minute though and there's often things discussed in that like, yeah, it, it's, sure. it's interesting how certain genres kind of feel like they have responsibilities like with certain pop music it has to be superficial to a certain degree and kind of less weighty yeah. but then something like hip-hop which is massive at the minute or rap can tackle those things yeah, I guess still be huge. maybe that's like playlist culture. You know, people go to go to pop when they want to get ready for well, when they used to want to get ready for a night out. They don't they don't want to think about social injustice. They want to just have a vodka. 
I might probably dig an hole for myself now. But I imagine people <laughs> want to do that. And then if you want to think about something, then I don't know. I have no idea. It's probably a pretty stupid idea to try and make catchy songs with a point because they're kind of opposite things. But um, It used to be popular, though. If you look at someone like, um, I mean, even Dylan, for example, a kind of obvious yeah. one, someone who had incredible melodies and yeah, yeah. was able to package it and stuff that went to the top of the charts or whatever yeah i, def- I think it's it's just, yeah it's the main thing for me like if the song doesn't have a point or say something then i don't like it <laughs> to be blunt I, like yeah it's the biggest thing for me so when you're writing do you always kind of have a broader idea or a kind of singular point in your head that you're kind of unifying it around uh no I don't always. I I think I I've, I had another band for a long time, which uh, where I ha- where I kind of because I've also got the side of me that wants to just write songs about nothing. So I kind of made this other band called Middle England that was just just me like saying whatever the hell I want. We had songs about yogurt and you know just bollocks, but it was really fun. And actually, people said it kind of made more of a point than. Mellow, some of them. <laughs> if you've got that side of yourself, though, that that needs to be satisfied in terms of writing, you know, more lighthearted kind of stuff or lighthearted music. Sorry, do you ever just write songs for yourself that you have no real intention of releasing at any point, but just because you kind of want to scratch that itch? Yeah, I've written, I've I've written a lot of songs that usually it's the other way though. It usually it's they're too depressing to be released. I think. Well, I've been told they're too depressing to release. I kind of want to put them out, but they're they're pretty bleak. Some of them, to be honest, the label, like whenever I write a catchy, upbeat one, that's the one they want most of the time. They don't want the like dark ones. It's interesting. And maybe do you think something's changed in the world then? Like what we were speaking about earlier, in terms of pop music coming to be this slightly empty thing, has something shifted from? Years gone by, so we're at this point now where people are looking for it to do something different for them. What pop? Yeah, or music in general. Possibly um, both. I I really I I really don't know. Like I don't I don't know. I I don't know what what people want from music. I think like most. I don't know if it's as much of a platform for political points as as it used to be. It feels like it's not, but I don't know if that's just because I'm in it. But I feel like people kind of the way people consume music now isn't. It, it's kind of more just like background you know like the whole playlist thing you can go on spotify and type in like pub playlist you know if you're in a pub and it'll just play some music that sounds like you're in a pub i don't know if people consume music as they i don't know if they listen to it as like what someone's saying as much but I'm, i might be wrong i don't know but i think other uh artistic genres have kind of filled that role a bit like i think comedy is a lot is way more political than it used to be it's kind of one of the few places you can say stuff and say whatever you want really and get away with it yeah that's that's what i find comedy amazing because it's like the only other place where you have one person standing in front of however many people talking about something is politics like and as long as it's funny you can say whatever you want also it's like comedy is really i think at the kind of the forefront of like where society's at because for it to be funny it's kind of got to push the boundaries a little bit because you know that's kind of, that's why things are funny because it feels like a release for people they're like oh i wish i could say that you know but if you push it too far it's it's not funny you know but if you don't get far enough it's not funny like 20 years ago fucking bernard manning was funny you know bernard manning's not funny but 20 years ago he was like on telly he's fucking racist you know do you know what I mean? It's like it's really at the forefront, I think, of where society's at and what. It's also like such a vesture of, of free speech. A joke is so different to a statement, you know. They're two very different things. And out of context, like a joke could be. I think that's what, what's gotten a lot of people in trouble previously is that the jokes are taken out of context. And they're yeah. taken almost. It's like when you see something that you say written down. Yeah, yeah, and it sounds completely different. Like whenever I type out a transcript of doing an interview or whatever, and I look back at it, the thing that you say when it's just in conversation sounds or feels completely different, written yeah. down on a piece of paper for some reason. Yeah, yeah. 
is a thing. Context, context is a big thing, but it doesn't. It seems to not. It kind of goes hand. Context sort of goes hand in hand with like fact <laughs> at the time. I think like we really, really live in. It's like post truth, isn't it? Like you can make a statement and really have anything to back it up with, but it doesn't, it doesn't need backing up. It's just a you know a statement can be shared around the world and not have any fact behind it but still be taken by half the people that see it as truth it feels like we've um, we're almost trying to catch up to that too late as well now like when you look at what twitter is doing recently where they have those little um you know things underneath it saying this may not be true or whatever yeah and you look at all of trump's tweets and stuff but it feels like it's a little bit you know that should have been happening four years ago yeah i mean it should have but i think people are slowly realizing how much power those companies have I mean, because if like, you only got to look at Trump or Brexit, like Bre- Brexit, it's astonishing what they did on Facebook. It's like the most powerful propaganda machine ever invented. You watch the uh, Cambridge Analytica doc. Yeah, and that interview with that, I can't remember her name now, but... The Guardian journalist, she speaks yeah, yeah. about it. Yeah. yeah, it's pretty terrifying. It's also like, that. I found what she talked about really interesting saying about like a hundred years ago or however long that we made it illegal to walk around with bags of money being like, if you vote for this person, I'll give you some money. Whereas like on Facebook, they were like, click on this link and you get a 10 pound Betfair thing. And then it took you to like a link about how many Turkish people were coming to Britain and then a Brexit thing, you know, like that's, that's buying votes, isn't it? That's the same thing. We do live in a weird age where it is the old thing of history is doomed to repeat itself. Things that were kind of outrolled a hundred years ago are starting to come back, like you say, that scheme there. Or even recently the thing that Spotify are way to bring in, you know, that idea of making artists take less of a commission to get higher up on playlists or whatever. Yeah. It's just the same as people, you know, people used to have to play for radio play. It's all these things like weird kind of capitalist consumerist things that we outlawed because they don't really work for society in general a hundred years ago and now they're coming back in like new forms. Yeah, I think as lo- as long as our system is based on power and profit, they will always be there. If there's one thing that David David Cameron say, profit isn't a dirty word. Yes, it is. It's the dirtiest word there is. Yeah. How does that affect when we live in this world where this is becoming increasingly and increasingly more apparent, and it's kind of just getting worse? How does that impact you as an artist? Does the role of an artist change when a world becomes more consumerist and more driven by that idea of profit and it it feels like a, it's kind of counterintuitive to good art in a work kind of way. Yeah, I think that any any artist that's the biggest struggle is living within a. I mean, for any any conscientious person living within a system where the only way you survive is by making money, but then trying to make art about that system and then sell it is quite a head fuck. I don't really know the way around it. I've tried to sort of separate them out to separate things i don't have an answer to that to be honest it's if i'm honest it was a lot simpler when i made music as a hobby and then i had a job where which i lived off there were two very separate worlds you know i could make music about my job and about the system and about people and it was just music for music but now music is my job it's a real head fuck what point in your life like what kind of time frame was that how long ago was that period in which you were making music and you still had a job and it was kind of just a hobby uh like three years four years ago oh so quite quite recent yeah i mean i only had anyone interested in my music yeah three years ago i think four years ago 2017 yeah three years ago was that the first dp yeah i mean that's the first time i actually put any music together but i'd written stuff for a long time before that i just never put anything concise together why was that ep the first thing that came together what kind of sequence of events led to the point where it kind of coalesced in that way? Um, my dad died, which was a big a big thing that I don't really know what happened, but after he died, I just had a very strong urge to write and record. I don't really know why, but it it was just very it seemed very obvious that that's what I should be doing, and the emotions of after his death were just very clear like really really clear 
And this thing is one of the first times in my life I felt like my voice, uh, I had a right to sing. You know, or like I had a, I had a, a reason or something to say. Whereas before I, th I felt like I didn't ever put any music out because I just wrote for myself, you know. But I felt like his death helped me see something quite clear and also took away a lot of the fear of being honest. I didn't really care if people liked it because I knew it was true. I knew what I was saying was honest. Yeah, and it was actually credit where credit's due. It was Ollie, Ollie Bartonwood, who convinced me to put an EP together. And he helped, he, he helped me put it all together. He produced the whole thing with me. He chose the five songs with me. Like He, he helped me put that thing together. And then I just chucked it like a friend of a friend of a friend who worked for a label called Lucky Number. And they messaged me back the same week being like, do you want to meet? And then everything kind of went from there. So yeah, credit, credit where credit's due, Ollie helped me a big, in a big way to start this off. I do, yeah, I, re I want, I do want to credit Ollie a lot because he's, he does that for a lot of artists. He started a little label now and he's like, he's, a, he doesn't do it for money. You know, he's like, he, he he does stuff for super cheap. He did that whole EP with me for like five hundred quid, I think, because he believed in it, and he still does it now with artists that he believes in. Did that give you confidence as well when yeah. someone's gonna back you like that? Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, yeah, it did, and also like a label putting my music out was like I'd never never experienced that. I'd been in a band before that for like eight years. We'd put music out, but it wasn't like. I don't know. Yeah, it gave me a lot of confidence. I think the biggest thing for me, the biggest battle I have is feeling like I have a right to, to put out music, especially now, like, you know, I'm a white man. Like, I, I don't, I, most of the time I don't feel like I, I should have a voice, you know. And I've been told repeatedly I shouldn't have a voice. Who's told you you shouldn't have a voice? Lots of people. Ex-girlfriends. <laughs> um, people on social media. I agree. I've been told I shouldn't put out music because I take up space from other people, you know, like women putting out music or minorities putting out music, which I, I, I agree with to a certain extent, but that isn't why I'm making music, you know. I'm not making music to put it out. I'm not making music to have a record deal. I've made music my whole life and I will always still make music. It's, it's very easy to sort of blame the artist for their popularity or their, like, their position where I, th I do think that there's a system in place which promotes there's a system in place that gives power to white men still I, I, I agree most of the time that like I shouldn't have a, a platform like I shouldn't have a voice I think a platform and a voice are quite different things though I think everyone's got a right to a voice yeah no you're right actually I guess I'm not looking at it like that yeah you are right I shouldn't have a platform. I, I often think that's the big, I mean, it's the biggest thing. I, one of the biggest things I struggle with that I kind of resent myself for having this opportunity when I feel like I've been told repeatedly that I shouldn't, you know, but also that's not why I make music. And I'm, even if I didn't have a platform, I would still make music. So I'm just going to make music. <laughs> I mean, the, the platform's almost a byproduct. Like you're just making the music for yourself and the traction yeah. has kind of occurred around it. Yeah. I also think there's a, I don't know, it's a, it's, it's, I struggle with it a lot, to be honest. Like, I, I'm pretty prone to self-doubting any chance to do it, and I'll, I'll jump right in. Can you use self-doubt to fuel you in any way? I've, Can you yeah. turn it into a positive? Yeah, yeah, I mean, most of the songs I write about, I mean, I've literally just got off my organ. I wrote a song this morning about, pretty much about that. It, it I mean, music for me is therapy, and it's like, it's the only way I make sense of things. It's how I process stuff. Because I don't, I don't have the answers. You know, I don't know what I don't, I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> I'm trying to just make sense of it or understand it in some way. It, I mean, if, if making music is like therapy and it's a way of working through things, has making music impacted your understanding of yourself or your understanding of the world around you more? Yeah. I mean, completely. This might sound weird, but when I write a line that, or or a, or a sentence that means something to me, it's almost like it's not coming from me. It's not like I've thought of this line. It just comes. I can't really describe it. 
I think a lot of American artists say that they're like channeling God, you know, because they all believe in God, which it is kind of like that if you believe in God. Um, it's sort of just the more, I think it's the more like brutally honest I could be with myself. And that, I can't really describe it. When you get to that place that's like really, you're not thinking, the words just just happen. I can't really describe it. It's, it's, it's kind of, it's it's weird. Like it just, they just come out of nowhere. And then I, I know when it's good if I, if it makes me cry. That's my aim with music most of the time is to make myself cry. Because that's why it's like therapy really for me. Because it's like, it really feels like when, when some words come out that feel real and feel true, it, it's really therapeutic. It's like something I've shone a light on, on part of myself that I didn't understand before. How often do you, would you say you kind of get to a point where you can make yourself cry with the music you're writing? Is that quite a rare occurrence or does it happen? Uh, it's pretty rare. I'd say I play or try and write six days a week pretty much. Maybe once a fortnight I'll get, I don't know, sometimes... You can get you can it can be like every day in a week. Other times it can't happen. It won't happen for like a whole month. Um, I think it's kind of where you're at emotionally. And like this week, I've got f- f- two songs out in in the last five days. Other times, I won't have a single word for a month. How? Well, I mean, when you were writing this morning, is that did the whole song kind of come, or was it just parts of it? The song uh, you were writing on the organ. I've had the melody for maybe a week, and then. A verse came last week and then the rest of it came yesterday and today. Is it quite rare for inspiration to kind of strike you in the morning? Because remember last time we were speaking, you were saying it's usually about 4 or kind of 5 p.m. that you kind of start to get into that flow state. Yeah, it is quite rare actually. Yeah, it's usually in the evening. But yeah, I think it's just because I went straight to the keyboard, uh, to the organ and sat down on it. Also, I had therapy this morning, so that usually helps. I've started back in talking to someone which for a long time I thought I mean for a long time I wouldn't talk about it because I was I felt like why do I have a right to do it but and I also thought it would damage my creativity I had this kind of conception that if I didn't have things like demons then I wouldn't have anything to write about but the reality is like everyone has demons and I've got demons but if if you if you can't see them then you can't write about them if they're just in you and you don't know they're there. All they do is control your behavior, affect your behavior, and then actually stop you writing. Because the reality is, you don't end up. You end up just being depressed and not getting anything out at all. But therapy's helped me massively be honest with myself and face a lot of stuff. I mean, every pretty much every song I've put out for the last, apart from Hitchin, which I wrote seven years ago, is all all come from therapy. Like habit is about cycles that I've got in my whole life like destructive cycles of destroying everything positive in my life wouldn't happen without therapy death British plunders about about that just like the destructive side of me it's been kind of my main source of inspiration like discovering shining lights on bits of myself through therapy and then understanding them with music did therapy change your perspective on the rest of your life did you like you look back and see patterns emerge that you hadn't previously noticed yeah I mean massively I and I still haven't fully processed them or changed them, but I think it takes a long time for once you've sort of shone a light on something and seen it, it takes quite a long time before even if you notice it happening again and again, it takes a long time before the feeling changes. Because often it's not it's not like a conscious thing, you know, like you don't wake up and think, oh, I'm going to just destroy like this good thing in my life. It you just feel, you just feel like that's what you're gonna do. So it takes a while before the sort of conscious understanding of what you're doing affects how you're actually feeling. Take it's a very slow process yet, but it's changed me massively. I guess you need to work out where it comes from to kind of combat it, or yeah, yeah, yeah for sure. Because no matter how much we like to think of ourselves as in control or like autonomous beings we're products of our environment and we're products of our parents and we're products of our society your subconscious is powerful thing it's making most of the decisions for you how much of your decision making would you say is your subconscious and how much would you say is conscious uh, <laughs> that's a pretty philosophical question 
Um, I was going to ask a more philosophical one and then I kind of backed <laughs> away from it. <laughs> uh, I mean, he can't really answer that. <laughs> Do you, like, I guess, your, yeah, because you don't know it's subconscious. Is your con like, is it my conscious or my subconscious answering that? Is, I think your conscious decisions, even if you believe they're conscious, are going to be affected by your subconscious. You don't, that's the thing about your brain is telling you that you have control when you don't. Most of the time, you don't. And I guess it comes back to the old debate about whether free will is an illusion or not, like whether we're all just, you know, a product of our experiences. Yeah, which also brings, well, I don't know if it brings it, but it really brings me back in my mind to, again, social media and, like, this thing of, like, people, this, like, divide between people where you sort of demonise people because of their opinion. When the reality is, like, that opinion, if you'd been brought up in that person's environment, you'd probably have the same opinion. Like, it's... it. You don't change people's minds by like telling them they're wrong, you know. This whole thing of like not having conversation and just demonizing people, just telling them that you're wrong and that's it. And I won't talk to you about it. I'll just tell you you're wrong. It doesn't change. Like the whole thing about, isn't it like the definition of being left wing is like, of being liberal is um, progressive. And like the way you progress is if, if, is if things change. And the only way people change is if you talk. Just like, putting someone in a box, demonising them, telling them they're sexist or they're racist, or it, like they are sexist, they are racist, but if you demonise that... It, You're just going to cha- empower them. It, well, it, it, it martyrs them for a start. It's like not having given them a voice, just shutting them up, martyrs them immediately. Like, let I think, fucking let them, have a, let them talk. Like, the, the, their arguments don't have any factual basis anyone responds to that argument they'll be shut down in a moment like that it, it's a stupid argument it doesn't have any basis in in fact but if you just shut them up immediately then anyone who has who agrees with them like they become a martyr and they don't even need any fact you know that's what i mean about like you how did we get onto this subconscious like that that that, <laughs> that like if if i think take anyone if you were brought up in a racist household in a racist town in a racist country and then your news the the only experience of like other races you had the experience of like middle eastern people you had was the news fucking telling you that that terrorists are bombing and they're all they're all brown people and like all crime is black people and you don't meet any black people you don't meet any brown people like i don't see how you would not be racist you would you don't you don't you, those people haven't been given the opportunity to see why they're why they're wrong, why their opinions are racist or, or aren't based in any fact. If you're just told like it's not it's not a coincidence that every religion is in the world is based in one country, you know? You don't grow up in a Hindu in a, in India with a Hindu family going to praise Hindu gods every every day and then turn out Christian, you know? You don't grow up in a Christian in America and turn out Muslim. I mean, you know, what I mean? you know what I mean. It's like, yeah. It, if you're indoctrinated into something, that's what you believe. That's your belief system. So I think it's just it's just really dangerous to just demonize people immediately, like like it's their choice. It's their choice to be bigoted, because it obviously it is a choice. But you you need another part. You need to be shown another path in order to change that bigotry. If you just demonize people, they don't have another path. They don't have a. They don't have an opportunity to redeem themselves. Yeah, I think there's such a lack of mercy in our society now. There's no room for redemption. Yeah, it's that whole kind of divide and conquer thing as well and putting people into these individual kind of groups based upon their beliefs or their kind of moral views. And as soon as you split people apart, like you say, it kind of just fuels that lack of mercy and I guess condescension from a lot of people as well when looking at people with views they don't necessarily agree with. Yeah, it's shadow play. It's, it's, it's like the definition of it. It's, it's making, making the other people evil making those people bad and that makes you not bad that makes you the good guy it's like it's it's the shadow play it's like what we do it on a societal level you know even like the the whole thing of like terrorism like it's like that's not it doesn't exist like it's like you get a white guy bombing a church and it's a white guy it's just a guy a crazy guy 
you get a brown person bombing a church, terrorism. It's shadow play, like that. You you make an enemy out out of people, out of out of a society, out of a certain group of society. Even like what George Bush called the like, what is it? North Korea, Iraq, Iran, the axis of evil. Like they're countries. They're not evil. They're not evil countries. But it is you just like de- you make these these countries or these people into literal demons and whoa whoa <laughs> <laughs> it's terrifying well, i just pressed play on something back. <laughs> um yeah and that makes you the good guy you know it if if someone else is the bad guy gives you room to be the good guy when the reality is the de- the demons the shadows are in your own society that they're in within you you're just projecting them on other people I mean, it's the same with like when you look at america you know bombing countries to stop terrorism you don't exactly. stop terrorism you just create more of it exactly there's this amazing book called owning your own shadow and it talks about that exact thing and it says how the shadow manifests in in other ways and a lot of the time it's in like popular culture or media and he talks about star wars and like why it's such a huge thing, huge franchise. Because if you actually look at the the story of Star Wars, it's like this huge evil empire with all the power and all the money and all the guns and blah, 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 blah invading these like people that live in the desert with towels around their head who have nothing. But the people who live in the desert are the good guys. That, that's literally what is happening. <laughs> that's what we're doing. But in in our, in in our shadow world, like... We know those people are the good guys. We know we're the evil empire, but we can't face that, you know? Like, they are, the rebels are terrorists. They're literally terrorists. They go up, they go and bomb imperialists. Like, that's what that's what's happening. But we, we project ourselves as, like, the good guys, you know? We're not the good guys. It's amazing, but it, it's really, it's really short. It's like, it's a really short book, but it's it talks about, like, how that's in religion like it's it stems back from the beginning of like humanity that we always like with god and the devil you always have this you always project this shadow and it's always the reason that there's an enemy you know that's why people that's why we make these enemies they don't actually exist like people just do things because they're compelled to do it and that's the environment they grew up in and people do bad things because but they're not bad people. People find ways to, you know, rationalise it for themselves as well. Like they kind of fit it into their own individual narrative. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, it's easier to do that than to look in the mirror or or reflect on your own society. Have you always been able to do that? You know, kind of look in the mirror and, and no. face? No. <laughs> at what, what point did you kind of gain that? Because when you look at your song right now, like we've been speaking about and the fact that it's so surrounded around honesty and being genuine at what point were you able to kind of face yourself and look in the mirror i mean i still struggle with that every day that's not i'm not like i I think about these things all the time and i try and process them but i'm in no way like i still play into this i still play into things that are damaging to me and people around me i try and understand these things but i don't fully understand them and i don't fully understand myself but the only thing i think the only thing you can do not even as an artist, but like as a person, is to try and stay open and reflect whenever I can, and just be on, on, on try and be honest, and not be led by what's like a popular idea or or like just to make up your own mind. One of my favourite lines I've ever written, one that like kept, seemed to come from nowhere, was if you're not thinking for yourself, then what you're thinking isn't right. Are there any political ethos that you kind of identify with in any way or do you then very much kind of stay open and in your own thing and just taking bits from each kind of one and kind of you know worldviews that come as a result of that i mean i'd say i want to live in a liberal society i want to live in a sharing open society i was thinking it makes a lot more sense i want to live in a society that helps people that need help so yeah i mean i'm liberal but what i don't agree with is this kind of moral high ground that liberals seem to have taken that's like in my eyes oppressive a good example of it when tommy robinson got punched in the face like tommy robinson is a horrible man like he's full of 
hate and vile, vile man. But you can't just shut people down. That's fascism. Like telling someone, people were like reposting it like, yeah, punch that guy in the face. No, <laughs> that that to me is terrifying. This like idea that because you have moral superiority, which you do, like left, the left wing is right. Like it's, it, I mean, it's it's got moral high ground over right wing. But you can't just shut people up. You can't just say, I don't like your opinion, so I'm entitled to punch you in the face. No, that that terrifies me. That's like, that is fascism. It's like, you don't agree with me, so I'm going to shut you up. That I find that terrifying. It's not liberal. I mean, it's not liberal. It's like, it, it's not democratic. It's, it's, and the amount of people that reposted that, like, it was terrifying. I found it terrifying. And I, when I kicked up a fuss about it, people were like, calling me right wing you know so like, I'm, I don't agree because I don't want you to punch this guy in the face doesn't mean I agree with his opinion yeah I mean he ties into what you were saying earlier as well about that idea of if you were brought up in a certain environment and were poorly educated in a certain way you would hold those beliefs I mean I watched his Oxford he did one of those you know those Oxford Union addresses yeah yeah, and the amount of people that were like he shouldn't be allowed to do that I mean it, hi- it highlighted two things it highlighted one like what you said he, you kind of got an understanding that he had those views as a result of a poor upbringing exactly. and, and, and those kind of experiences and also it basically just highlighted the fact that there was nothing behind any of his arguments exactly. it just highlighted exactly. how fucking stupid he is everything he said it was just nah. exactly that's what I mean like don't ban these people from talking because if you ban them they just become martyrs and like they don't like give, when everyone's like ban Trump from coming here give him a stage like I th- I think it's even I mean, it's been fucking horrible for four years, but him having that seat—he's just full of bullshit. He has is no, nothing's based in fact. So clearly, just based in bigotry. Like so much of his opinion. But if if he hadn't had that seat, I don't think I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong here, but I just think you can't shut people up. You're never going to shut people up. You can't. You don't change people's opinions by just shutting them up you change people's opinions and then systems through that by having conversation and showing and like without sounding condescending educating people i grew up in a, one of the most multicultural cities in the world in a school with like as many black kids and muslim kids and asian kids as white kids and that's the reason that i don't see race like i mean obviously I think it's that's a big statement, but I I think about racism and I see it like when it's very clear when it's something's you know whether we're talking about systematic racism or whether like you know I I I think about racism and I I like to think I'm open if someone told me I I have inherent racism then I'd think about it you know I'm saying you know what I'm saying whereas if I grew up in I don't know somewhere else around those white kids and then I probably wouldn't. I mean, I grew up in a school of 800 people. High school with probably about maybe 20 black people at that school. And the result of that is that everyone's fucking racist. Yeah. It, almost, it, it highlights it more and, I don't know, I feel like people just want something to... I guess people are unsatisfied with where they are in life and they want something to make themselves feel better about themselves and putting other people down and kind of discriminating as a way to do that and it's i don't know it it doesn't it doesn't work in any way it's horrible and it it well, doesn't see, work for the person and it, it certainly doesn't work for anyone else yeah and i don't I also think people have really got to put less emphasis on the individual and more on the system like the, the certain media outlets spew this shit at people and if that's all you read that's all you see on the telly. That's just what you're going to believe. You know, it's not... It goes back to the subconscious thing. Like, people... Most people... It's maybe a controversial thing to say, but most people don't think for themselves. I think, as a society, we're, we're slowly... I do believe we're slowly moving to, more towards self-enlightenment and enlightenment on a social level. Because, like, I don't, I don't know, you could... Like we we like the First World War. How many people died in that? And it was based on what? Like it was all politics. Like there was nothing in it. 
and millions of people died over politics. It wasn't like a morality or like freedom. Yeah, I don't think you could convince a society of that now. I think this idea as well that people just kind of absorb things and they don't really think for themselves and they don't spend that time, you know, reflecting and putting putting the hours into actually working through issues in their mind. That's probably part of the reason why everything is so reactionary as well now. Because people just have this kind of subset of values that they've adopted from somewhere and they're just going to use them to spark off. Yeah, yeah, it's, 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 uh, it's, and I I think the left is as, as guilty of this as the right. Like you have a script, like sometimes when I, when I respond to people about some view that I think's like oppressive to someone else or, or in some, like, it's like people just read off a script, you know, it's like they're not opinion. And also people are so unwilling to reflect or like say, or to hear an opinion that it doesn't validate theirs. Like it's, I, I do think that that is a product of people feeling emboldened behind a keyboard, you know. Like if you were face-to-face with someone, you'd probably have a conversation. Whereas behind a keyboard, like it's your opinion is all that there is. You're never going to change your mind on from someone writing at you. <laughs> I think, I mean, I know a lot of people like you, the type of people who would have shared that Tommy Robinson thing and are maybe veering towards that emblazoned social justice warrior whose heart is for sure in the right place, but some of the things they share, like you say, kind of go over the edge into that weird, too far left, kind of totalitarian, authoritarian thing. And when you challenge these people on it in person, there's nothing there. They've not put in the hours thinking about it. It's just sharing these reactions to things and these keynotes you know bullet points that are there and are designed to spark a reaction in people yeah also everything i'm saying is my opinion (laughs) like it's just (laughs) it's just this is how i see it and i'd be i'd be as open to someone telling me i'm wrong yeah it just i just think people should like try and understand each other and just like I've joined a I've joined a dating app lately, by the way, called Hinge. And the amount of people I see on there that are like, don't go out of me if you're a Tory. I don't agree with Tories. I think like the the whole the I don't want to live in a society like that. Inherently selfish. Like it's I don't want to live in a society like that. But I'm not gonna fucking just shut you down if you're if you have a different political opinion to me. It just it doesn't. I mean, there's this thing of like, if you're a Tory, I've literally heard my my friends use the word evil when they're talking about Tories. Evil, I there is, in my opinion, there is no such thing as evil. It's all a spectrum. It, exactly. It's it's not it's not a thing, and it's so it's really bad. I think to to even believe that evil exists, like evil is isn't a thing. It's is it's, it's People do bad things. You do bad things. It's, it's, it's a projection. Like it, and to, it's, it's terrifying, like, the polarisation between people. To just, sh- like... I have, I have mates that are Tories, you know? And I don't agree with some of the opinions they have, but I'll still talk to them. I'll, I'll still, like, have a conversation with them. And I'll disagree with them. And at the end of it, I'll still be their friend. And because of like with some of my really my I mean to get too personal, but one of my old relationships called me a closet Tory because I had a Tory mate. It's like that. That doesn't mean I agree with him. He's just a friend. Like he he's my friend, but I don't agree with his with his political opinion. But I mean he's from like fucking Carlisle. His dad his dad was like a truck driver. He like built this company. He he thinks he's like he he did come from nothing. And built something for himself, and he sees like, why should he give back? You know, but I mean that's exactly what we're speaking about, though. If you've had that experience, you're going to have a faith in in that system. Like it all comes down to the experiences you've had, and that's what's going to shape your yeah your exactly. beliefs. I mean, it is, in my opinion, an inherently flawed system because to say why should you give back to society that hasn't given? I mean, it, that's that's the main thing I hear from Tories is it's always the same phrase. Everything I have, I built for myself. No, you didn't. Bullshit. No, you didn't. You got free education. You got free healthcare. That you had a net your whole life. Most of the people that say it are over fifty. Like you had 
free education how about free education <laughs> how about giving back to society because of free education fuck you that fucks me off more than anything everything i have i built myself no you didn't sorry that got a bit heated about that <laughs> bit really fucks me off man that it's just like I, this it, you've taken shit loads of stuff for granted it's just ignorant it is like i mean <laughs> let's be honest like the right wing is pretty ignorant <laughs> but I, I've just spoke, tried to, that it's, I mean, all of it's ignorant. Bigotry is ignorant. It's just education, isn't it? But um, I just don't think you should condemn people because of ignorance. No. What scares you most about the world today? Oh, God, the most. I don't know what scares me the most. Fear. That's a simple answer. Just generic fear. Just fear scares me the most. Do you think that fuels a lot of what we've been speaking about? Fear. Yeah, the kind of like the things we've just spent like the last kind of half hour chatting about with people, and they're kind of uses a lot of that fueled by fear. Yeah, I mean, I think most bigotry is fear. Yeah, I think it probably is. I do. I do. I try and I try and hold on to hope as much as I can, and I do think as a society we move in. Like, it's better now than it ever has been. Even though it seems so bad. It only seems that bad because now we're shining a light on all the bad stuff. That bad stuff was always there. It was just behind the scenes. Eight years ago, we didn't talk about race on the news. You know, it wasn't like... It was like, you know, fucking Maggie Thatcher called Nelson Mandela a terrorist. You know, it's better now. It seems really bad, but that's because it's because it's got a light shone on it, and if it has a light shone on it, it has the chance to change. So that's where I try and find hope um, that we are moving towards something better. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.